This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. New York City FC preparing for match two of the 2020 MLS regular season. It'll be in Toronto on Saturday following that difficult opener at Columbus. And then it'll be back to CONCACAF Champions League for the boys in blue. One of the notables on the Toronto FC roster, a Japanese native Subasa Endo. A threat throughout the 2-2 draw with San Jose in the opener with a team leading three attempts on goal. Dan Orlowitz has followed the 26-year-old Endo's path quite closely. He writes for the Japan Times, and he'll be joining us in a moment. Uh, he'll also talk about another Japanese player who's expected to influence MLS, another 26-year-old, the designated player Yuya Kubo for FC Cincinnati, who made his debut in a 3-2 loss to the New York Red Bulls. Dan will also address the impact of the coronavirus in uh, his part of the world. He's in Tokyo. And the Im impact on the J-League, the top tier of Japanese football. Again, that's in a moment. First, New York City FC primed for their regular season debut after advancing to the quarterfinals of the CONCACAF Champions League with a decisive 6-3 aggregate triumph over AD San Carlos of Costa Rica. Well, just two minutes into the match at Montfrey Stadium, Maxime Chinot red-carded for denying a goal-scoring opportunity for Lucas Zellerian, the new 27-year-old DP for the Columbus Crew SC. There was no official VAR review, but after watching the TV replays, there was little doubt about the decision by referee Ramey Tushan. Uh, Zellerian uh, eventually broke through in the 56th minute on a curling shot past Sean Johnson, his uh, first MLS goal in City, dropping the one to nothing road match. First-year coach Ronnie Dyla after the game. The team spirit and the discipline and the hard work was uh, faulted very, very good. Very tough, of course, when you get um, ten, 10 men so early in the game. But uh, we stayed in the game to the end. And uh, in the end there, we could get something else. Of course, they had some more chances than us, but you can't, you can't expect that. Uh, that's not going to happen. So I think they, they were doing took up everything they had. And um, in the end, we were a little bit too short. We just have to now get restituted and uh, get their minds right. And, uh, we have to bounce back as quick as possible, and the first opportunity for that is Toronto. And, uh, I'm sure, I know that uh, me and uh, all the boys want to want to do uh, get something out of that game. They'll have to play without Cheneau with the one-game suspension and maybe Sebastian Ibiaga, who is day-to-day -day with an ankle sprain, which forced him out of the Crew SC contest. Maybe you look for James Sands at the back, Keaton Parks back of the midfield in the starting 11 for New York City as they'll look to get Dyla his first MLS win against a team that upset the Pigeons in the Eastern Conference semifinals last season. Dan Orlowitz, he's a soccer correspondent for the Japan Times, also an editor for the paper. In January, he wrote a fantastic piece with a focus on Subasa Endo. He's the Toronto FC attacking midfielder, won an MLS Cup with Toronto in 2017, and uh, he's someone New York City will have to deal with on the weekend. Dan, welcome to the uh, program. Uh, really uh, happy to uh, talk to you. I know we've uh, we've conversed on Twitter through DM, but now we get a chance to chat. Absolutely. Thank you, Glenn, for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. Well, I, I'm, I'm real curious about your background because we haven't discussed this at all. And the story of uh, you're obviously an American, but you ended up uh, in Japan uh, covering the top tier of Japanese football, the J-League. So how did this all happen? 
Uh, well, gosh, it, it really all started. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia back when it was a four-sport town and not a five-sport town. Uh, I studied at a, a small liberal arts college called Simons Rock College of Bard. Uh, now it's called something else. I think Bard College at Simons Rock, the early college is the, the full name. But I studied there and I got an interest in Japanese culture and I did my uh, junior year uh, here in Tokyo through Temple University, uh, which has a uh, campus located in Tokyo. And I did a year and I fell in love with the place. And after I graduated, I decided, okay, I'll, I'll move back. And I went to my first J-League game in uh, May 2007, fell in love with it, started blogging about it, started tweeting about it. And uh, the rest was history. I, I worked for a few different uh, websites, uh, Goal.com, a couple uh, domestic outlets, and I joined the Japan Times about a year and a half ago. My appreciation for Japanese pop culture, the anime, music, uh, video games, that sort of thing uh, evolved around that time. This was in 2001, 2002 or so. And uh, I don't quite know where soccer came in. I played as a kid. Uh, my career ended in junior high, uh, but it wasn't until here that I went to a game or two and I started going behind the goal at FC Tokyo games. And I just, it, it was my, my place to go. It was uh, where I developed a lot of my language skills and uh, just fell in love with the game really. So yeah, you fell in love with the game to the point where you're now covering uh, the top tier uh, in Japan, the, the J-League. Uh, for those who might not be familiar with that setup, uh, just describe the league to us, how, it, uh, how it's constructed. The J-League is uh, Japan's professional uh, soccer competition. It has three divisions. Uh, in total, there are, I'm going to get this wrong, probably uh, 50... Six teams. Um, I'm going to look that up uh, as I as we have this conversation because uh, I, I I should explain there are 18 teams in the first division, uh, 22 teams in the second division, and four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, uh, sixteen teams in the third division plus. Uh, Three of the J1 clubs have under 23 teams that also compete in the third division, which is where the, the weirdness comes from. So, uh, yes, 56 professional clubs and a number of clubs in the uh, lower amateur divisions or amateur leagues, I should say, that are trying to get into the J League. Uh, there is promotion and relegation uh, between the J1 and J3. Uh, that is all done through a club licensing system where clubs need to fulfill certain standards in order to get the license that lets them compete at the, in the J2 or the J1. So if you, even if you finish in the top two spots in the J2, if you don't have a J1 license, you aren't getting promoted. Uh, it's a very uh, competitive league. It, there's a lot of parity. Uh, there are some clubs that have a lot of money and do well. There's some clubs that have a lot of money and don't do well which is something that uh, MLS fans will be pretty familiar with. Well, So pro-rel, so teams move up or move down, 
not on the basis of results, but on the basis of whether they uh, qualify f- from some standard? They they do have, the ProRail is based on results, but in order for the results to count, you do need to have the license. So, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, a club called Machu de Zelvia uh, in the second division, they finished, uh, I believe, in fifth place, fourth or fifth place, which would have qualified them for the uh, ProRail playoff. Uh, but they didn't have a J-1 license, so they were ineligible to participate in the playoff. Uh, most clubs do have a J-1 license. A few J-2 clubs don't. Uh, that comes down to uh, stadium issues, usually. Uh, you have to have a, uh, for the J-1, you have you need a capacity of, I believe it's 15,000 right now. Uh, they actually introduced a rule because of Zelvia where you can get basically a waiver uh, to get a J-1 license if you have a plan to build a stadium in a certain amount of time. I believe it's within a five-year period. Uh, Some clubs don't have training grounds or clubhouses, and they're working on building those. And it's it's sort of a process. Uh, The J-League is very good about uh, not just sort of doing the MLS thing and franchising clubs and, you know, where you're paying $100 million and then all of a sudden you're in. Uh, you, they're, they're about clubs building themselves sustainably. You start in the J3 and then you build up and you get sponsors and you create an academy and eventually you work your way up to the J2, which many clubs have, and then hopefully you keep going and get your way to the J1. Well, it's more than $100 million now, Dan. Uh, Charlotte, we uh, it's never been clearly defined, but it's over $300 million that they shelled out. And if there's any further 300. expansion, yeah, and if there's any further expansion, it's going to be in excess of $500 million. I, you know, uh, $300 million could pay for uh, the, the wages of probably the top three or four clubs in the league, in the J-League combined. Uh, I think, I believe Vissel Kobe still have the highest wages in the league, probably because Andres Iniesta gets paid about uh, $30 million a year, something like that. I don't know. Or it, it's, it's some ridiculous figure. Uh, but overall, you know, you've got clubs like we have uh, Yokohama F. Marinos, who won the league last season, also owned in part by City Football Group, uh, just like NYCFC. And uh, clubs like uh, Nagoya Grampus, who get a lot of funding from Toyota, Rao Reds, who get their uh, main uh, budget from Mitsubishi. So you, you do have club, clubs where the, the, the parent company is putting in a bit of money, but still it, it just absolutely pales in comparison to the amount of money that's being thrown around in the U.S. Hi, uh, Dan Orlowitz, uh, soccer correspondent for the Japan Times out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, with us on frame. And we're, we're going to get to Subasa Endo and, and also Yuya uh, Kubo, the designated player for FC Cincinnati, a couple of the, the Japanese players who are, are here in the States, and get to those stories. But before, before we leave Japan, and you mentioned Iniesta and Vissel Kobe, uh, David Villa, former New York City FC uh, forward, high-scoring forward, who was a star in the MLS, uh, he, uh, he's retired. I, I'm curious as to what impact he had in what was a, a brief amount of time there. 
He did uh, pretty well in Kobe. Uh, he certainly made an impact. Uh, he certainly drew a lot of attention to the league and, and to the club. Uh, helped them win their first uh, title, even though, I mean, he, granted, in, in the Emperor's Cup final, he basically came on uh, in the 88th or 89th minute when the game was already uh, well in hand. But uh, he had a positive impact. Uh, he, I think when you get European stars coming over to the J-League, either they learn to play the role that's expected of them, or they get caught up in a bit of drama, which uh, their teammate Lucas Podolski uh, was certainly guilty of. Uh, but uh, Bia worked hard. Yeah, he, he, he represented the league well in you know, media appearances and all that stuff, and he went out a winner, and the fans loved him. And uh, yeah, it, it, overall, I think that it would have been nice to see him play more than one season. Uh, and the the retirement ceremony that the club held for him at the end of the, the J1 season was a bit over the top. I think they had replicas of all the trophies he won at Barcelona, and there were fireworks and, that, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that was a bit much for someone who only played one season at the club. But uh, <laughs> Well, tell me, is that, the, uh, is that the Japanese way? Is that part of the culture, to celebrate like it, that? It, it is. Uh, we, we celebrate, uh, I mean, when, when players retire... Uh, you, you've seen it in New York with like when when you're when Alex Rodriguez retired, when Derek Sheeter retired, like it's that level. But you'll get that level for like players who didn't necessarily like excel. Wouldn't that's wouldn't be Hall of Famers? Yes, okay. That way, sure. But players who are you know long like the long time veterans. The, the players who have been at the same club for 15, 20 seasons. Like, those are the sorts of players who, who will get it. But even uh, when players go to Europe, uh, they will get these tearjerker ceremonies. And it, it, it's something that we tend to make fun of the league and the players and the clubs, I should say, uh, for doing because it's a bit melodramatic and. You know, you're you're cheering on a player who's had maybe two or three years in the top team and hasn't won a trophy. Uh, and sometimes they succeed in Europe. A lot of the times they don't, which makes them makes makes it all look a bit silly in retrospect when they come back and you've got fans who are wearing the the fifty dollar commemorative T-shirt, the three hundred dollar <laughs> the the three hundred dollar commemorative uh, uniform. These this is these these aren't numbers I'm making up. This is things that we've actually seen. Uh, FC Tokyo charged, I think, around 3,000 yen, so about 30 bucks for the uh, Takepusa Kubo commemorative T-shirt, and that was pretty reasonable by J-League standards. So, you know, it, it, it's that sort of thing where it, it's about honoring the loyalty and commitment and, and more than accomplishments in some cases. Well, uh, and I, I want to get to the, uh, you talk about uh, uh... Uh, J-League players with that desire to get to Europe versus maybe Major League Soccer. Maybe that trend is uh, changing a bit. I, I want to talk about that. But first, I think one of the great stories in sports, especially now, uh, and, and I'm actually a little older than this guy, but uh, King Kazu and uh, Kazuyoshi Mira, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, 53, pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. 53 years old. He just signed up for another year 
with uh, Yokohama, the uh, CFG property that uh, is the defending uh, J League champ. I, I actually, actually know that, that that is that is not the right Yokohama. Ah, uh, this, this, this is this is an important uh, thing. Here we go. This is anyone... I'm learning a lesson here. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So there are two Yokohama teams. Uh, there is Yokohama F Marinos. And there is Yokohama FC, ah. who uh, King Kaz- which, which King Kazu plays for. Now, Yokohama F Marinos did not start as Yokohama F Marinos. They started uh, in 1993 when the J League opened as Yokohama Marinos, uh, formerly Nissan uh, Nissan SC, the the, the car maker. Um, when, when I talk about formerly company. Uh, that's because a lot of the J League clubs originally started as company clubs. They were, you know, rec- it was recreation for employees. Uh, most of the uh, the semi professional leagues and like the amateur leagues, they were company clubs uh, who changed into sort of proper uh, soccer clubs once the J League launched. So there was Yokohama Marinos, and then there were Yokohama Flugels. Which was formerly uh, all Nippon Airlines, the uh, the nat- one of the national carriers. So they had the rivalry until 1998, when ANA pulled out, and Marinos absorbed Flugels, and that was a very controversial thing at the time. And when you look back at history, basically now you look at their name, Yokohama F Marinos, the F standing for Flugels. Uh, after that happened, uh, some fans of the cl- of, of Flugels who didn't want to switch allegiances to, to their crosstown rivals, essentially, started their own club called Yokohama FC. And over time, they gained backing and eventually uh, made it to the J League. Uh, they were promoted once uh, for the 2007 season. Uh, they were spanked. I think they won, I think, 17 points in 34 rounds. Which was uh, at the time uh, a worst, uh, like the worst in J1 history, and then they had never saw the J1 again until last year when they finished second in the J2 and earned promotion again. So uh, this is their return to the J League for the first time in in 13 years, and they did it in their first match by uh, drawing with Vissel Kobe in Kobe 1-1, and uh, so so that's. Now you know that there's there's those two teams. Yeah. So is that a, <clears throat> does that? Well, I think now that they're back in one, it's, so now this becomes a a, a somewhat massive derby, or or not? That it, it is. No, it it it, it is massive. Uh, they have occasionally played each other in the Emperor's Cup, which is our version of the FA Cup or uh, the U.S. Open Cup, if you will. And uh, there there's a lot of uh, hatred there. Uh, mostly by the uh, Yokohama FC fans who are still very bitter about how everything went down, uh, but but in in some cases the feeling is mutual, and and so they there, there's there's nothing in terms of sort of violence, but they do have to take some steps to make sure that the uh, the, the supporter groups uh, don't get tangled up. All right, well that's uh, you know. That's what a derby's all about, Dan. But let's get, we got to get back to the fifty-three-year-old. So now yep, he's yep, he's yep, playing yep. he's playing at J one. And so tell me about him as a player. Is he in the is he in the eleven? I mean, is he is oh, he? Oh God, a, no, God, no, no. He he is still going. Um, he is worth more to Yokohama FC as uh, a billboard than 
for his skills. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, anyone, anyone would, would kill to have his athleticism and, and his physique at his age or even half his age. Uh, but at most, he's going to get, a, you know, I think he got 15 minutes last season. Uh, all of last season, and, and in the J two, they have they have forty two rounds, so that's a lot of games. I I think he'll 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 get garbage time here and there. Uh, he he's dealing with I believe a ankle or calf injury at the moment, so he's he's nowhere even close to the bench. Uh, but on those occasions where he is on the bench and maybe could play, uh, fans will come out uh, because he is a, a Japanese legend. Uh, a national team legend. He was one of the league's, one of the country's really first charismatic players. Uh, he, as a high schooler, he went to Brazil, dropped out of school, went to Brazil to play, uh, did very well there, came back, uh, joined Verdi Kawasaki uh, in the early days of the J-League and, and won the first two J-League titles with them. And uh, he, he's gone on and, and gone abroad and played here and there. Uh, he spent some time in Sydney. He spent some time in uh, Croatia, if I'm getting that right off the top of my head. Uh, some He spent a season in Italy that didn't really work out. That was mostly uh, Kenwood uh, putting up the sponsorship money uh, to make that happen, w- w- which is something that happened in the early days. But like overall, uh, he's still an amazing player. Uh, he's still a player that a lot of fans respect and adore. And uh, it gets the club and the, the league stories like this, where every season, just like clockwork, uh, everyone <laughs> from the BBC to the New York Times has to do their article about King Kazu yeah. renewing his contract. Well, I'm, uh, I'm happy to talk about King Kazu. Awesome. Dan Orlowitz, uh, soccer correspondent, Japan Times. New York City preparing to play Toronto FC. We talked about Dan's article in January about uh, Subasa Endo. A- and here's a kid. Well, he played at the University of Maryland under Sasha Sarovsky. Uh They got to the Final Four a couple of times. Uh, he was a big threat there. But uh, And then became the first Japanese player to be selected in the MLS Super Draft. So... Did he sort of break the ice and make America a bit more attractive? I mean, what was his story? How did how did he find himself on the path to the U.S.? Uh, you know, Subasu he was a really he was very gracious. So we talked for well over I think the, the the raw interview was over an hour, and it was very kind of him uh, to sit down and, and on a very cold uh, January day and talk shop. Um, he was not the first uh, Japanese player to join the MLS. Of course, there was uh, Kosuke Kimura, uh, who played for several years in, uh, for New York Red Bulls, Colorado Rapids. I believe he has officially retired as a player, uh, but he's a coach in uh, Nashville's system uh, these days, I was told by a beat writer down there. But Endo was definitely the first player to go up through the NCAA system and make it to the Super Draft, which was a very big thing. Uh, he was the, the first, I think, the first Japanese player to be selected in the top 10 of any uh, North American draft. Uh, he was uh, Rui Hachimura before Rui Hachimura, even. And uh, that, 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 will, will that basketball reference uh, fly well 
for your listeners. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Yeah, I mean, we, this is a soccer audience, man. This is a soccer audience. <laughs> okay. Well, of course, I'm, I'm referring to uh, Rui Hachimura, uh, currently a rookie with the Washington Wizards, right. who was selected number nine in in last year's NBA draft. And it should have been promising. And, and Endo did have a very good first season. It's just unfortunate that he struggled to find time uh, in 2017, the year when they did win that MLS Cup. Uh, I have touted for years uh, on the, the Japanese Twitter sphere, and I've said that players need to start looking at MLS more seriously. Uh, right now, Europe is experiencing a bit of a, a boom period for Japanese players. Uh, there's over 50 uh, in Europe in top divisions, even uh, so many that the Japan Football Association is establishing an office in Dusseldorf to uh, help players like onboarding and, and coordinate travel and help them get settled when they move. Uh, but it, it's been tough for a lot of them to find playing time. Uh, you do get the language and the cultural differences. Uh, obviously, uh, in the U.S., you're going to get a lot of that as well. Uh, but the the level at which MLS is growing, the amount of money that's going into the league, the amount of interest, interest that's going into the league, uh, I think that Japanese players who maybe want to go abroad but don't want to go to Europe, but they're worried about whether they can hack it in Europe. Uh, I, I don't mean to say that MLS is sort of uh, to get Europe's table scraps, but I would rather see Japanese players go to MLS and succeed rather than go to Germany or Belgium or Portugal and struggle or not even play. Well, well you talked about Endo. Excuse me. Uh, you talked about Endo, and uh, he's. Uh, we expect him to be in the uh, in the eleven for Toronto when they host uh, New York City on Saturday, and and he had the good rookie season, sophomore season. That, again, that was the year uh, of uh, MLS Cup, uh, the title for Toronto, but uh, very limited action there. Uh, it looked. Like, I think he played in four matches, but then I, I think it's really interesting how he got back into the fray because he was gone in two thousand eighteen. So what was the story of his return to Toronto? And now he's, uh, and this is all under Greg Vanny, who obviously uh, is now rewarding whatever has happened in the in the interim because he's he's a starter. Yeah, well, at the he didn't get uh, a contract at the end of the 2017 season, and he sort of hoped that he could either fight. Uh, he hoped that he could fight his way on back on, and he he tried and he couldn't, and and they had. I believe TFC2 gave him an offer, but he didn't want to, to settle for that, which is fair. Uh, he went on trial in Belgium for a month, uh, couldn't find a club there. And then eventually he, he kept up training in Toronto and said, I, I want to play again. Uh, I'll join TFC2. And so he signed with the second team, which is uh, that's very tough for a player to do, I, I'd imagine. And he did it with with grace uh, i think that the attitude that he talked about just wanting to go on the pitch and have fun and play and not worry about what comes next uh that that's very important for players to have because not everyone can make it onto the first team and not every first team player can make it into uh you know the match day squad so it, it does take a lot of persistence 
to play for the reserves, knowing that you know, your your time on the first team isn't going to come next week or even next month, but maybe next year. Uh, so I give him a lot of credit for holding on and being patient and, and working his way uh, back in and uh, doing what he's done. It, it's very impressive. Yeah, and uh, I think it takes a, a special person, an athlete, but to uh, to accept that role, and uh, is that uh, reflective of, of his personality, his makeup, sort of humble and hardworking? Yeah, uh, he. If, if you look at, at the steps that he took to uh, just to get to Maryland, uh, he talked about how much he had to study, uh, especially you know studying English because he had to pass the uh, the SATs to get on to to get a, his athletic scholarship, and that's having taught English in Japan, uh, much like basically most of the foreigners, most much like most Americans who have lived in Japan, I, I was down in those trenches for a couple of years. And it, it's very rare to come across students uh, who are that dedicated and uh, who, who want to push themselves that hard. Uh, so that is absolutely indicative of his character. Um, he's yeah, you know, uh, he's not a, a superstar in, in the sense of like that persona. He's just hardworking and driven, and uh, that is the kind of character that I think coaches respect and coaches will react well to, and and something that uh, teammates also appreciate. Uh, Dan Orlowitz uh, with the Japan Times. We're talking about Subasa Endo, Toronto FC uh, attacking midfielder. Uh, Dan wrote a, a, a great piece on Endo in January, so you got to Google it, but uh, it, it's worth the read, especially if you're a, a New York City fan and you want to get a little bit of an idea of the opponent uh, on Saturday. And I, I found it interesting in the article, Dan, how he compared Canada when he was drafted and arrived there to Japan, sort of polite and respectful. Yeah, yeah. Um... It, it was it's sort of like funny to to, to hear someone say that because you 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 joke that you can tell, uh, especially in in Tokyo, you can sort of tell the Canadians apart from the Americans by how nice the Canadians tend to be. And um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not just saying that because my wife my wife is Canadian, so I'm not just uh, not not just saying that. But but yeah, not like it like it it, it is funny. I I think that. Uh, Canada is a popular destination for uh, tourists here, especially uh, Vancouver, which is a much closer flight than uh, Toronto. And uh, Toronto is a cool city. And I absolutely just listening to him talk about what it's like living there. And I'm absolutely like, yeah, like that, that scans like it's uh, it is a very friendly culture. Uh, Japan maybe isn't quite as, as open as, Canada in terms of just the society and the culture, maybe a bit more reserved, but certainly the, the politeness, the, uh, the warmth is there. And I th definitely think that him having lived in the U.S. for four years helped him adapt to that. And you know, he was certainly ready to, to take that on. And I, I can imagine uh, what it was like for him sitting on draft day uh, he told me that he was actually expecting uh, to be taken by Kansas City. 
and uh, he was a bit shocked when Toronto called his name. And uh, he, you know, but you have to roll with it. You have to go with the team that picked you. Well, uh, and as far as his, uh, what his his uh, uh, how would we put it? His ego or uh, his uh, self confidence? Uh, it was Toronto picking two spots ahead of Sporting KC, so he's actually taken earlier than he expected. Yeah, uh, he he knew that they had that KFC had the eleventh pick. Uh, I think he was uh, thinking maybe he would go with their their pick in the second round, but he he knew that they were interested, and he thought, well, maybe I'll go eleventh, and then uh, number nine, Toronto FC choose Subas Ando, and I it was funny because I was looking at uh, the Kyoto, which is a Japanese wire service. And I was looking for some archive photos and they have the pictures of him on draft day, uh, in the suit with, with, with the big TFC scarf. And it was like, I could only imagine, uh, what that was like, but he, he handled it well. And, uh, he, I think he's, he's definitely done Maryland, uh, proud and he's doing the JFA Academy proud. Uh, he was, uh, really part of the, the for the first class of JFA Academy Fukushima and uh, certainly one, one of the first players from that academy system to go overseas. So I, I don't know uh, in Japan, I'm not sure what uh, uh, how he's evaluated uh, at the elite level, at the national team level, but does playing in the U.S. and not in the J League decreases chances of, of playing for the Japan national team? Is or is MLS starting to get a little bit more of uh, the the kind of ilk that might uh, tend for maybe the coaches to, to look a little bit more thoroughly here? And we're going to get the Yuya Kubo in a moment, who's uh, with FC Cincinnati. But uh, what do you think? Well, uh, right now, uh, the JFA is putting most of their resources in, into keeping tra- track of those, those 50-plus players I mentioned in Europe, uh, plus the few... Uh, national team class players who are still in the J-League. Uh, that's a problem that we've had to deal with uh, domestically, which is that all of our good national team caliber players, as soon as they hit now 2021, used to be 23-24. Uh, but now even as teenagers, they're, they're going to European clubs. And he, he spoke of his frustration in that the, the JFA weren't really following him, even though he played for Japan at the youth level. Uh, up until he left for the states, so that that's certainly disappointing. And but he did speak about how he hoped that if Yuyakubo does well in MLS, uh, that should draw more attention from Japanese media and hopefully give him uh, some attention as well. And all all he, he has to do is uh, get it done on the pitch. Well, let's talk Kubo uh, FC Cincinnati. He's a designated player. Uh, and I, I suppose he does have a little bit more of a profile uh, than Endo has really gone through the uh, youth national team level. He's been capped 13 times for the full team. Uh, I'm not sure where that stands at the moment. But tell us uh, about him a bit and uh, where uh, where where he's at in terms of uh, the impact he could have uh, in Japan on a player coming to the U.S. Uh, he's... He's a good player. Uh, he has been outside of the national team picture for about two years now, uh, which is unfortunate because he was doing some really good things at Young Boys in Switzerland. 
uh, you know, he left at 19 and went to Europe without an interpreter, and he was, played in Europe for seven years, and, and that's a very impressive thing to do. Uh, he, he's getting a bit up there in the years. I think that he'll really have to do well in MLS to get a serious national team look again. Uh, we're in a weird spot with the national team in that we have Hajime Moriyasu, uh, the head coach, and he's in charge of both the Samurai Blue, the senior team, and Japan's Olympic squad. So he's doing double duty, and that's having kind of mixed results uh, for us at the moment uh, on, on both sides. And uh, we'll, we'll see how things go, but I think Kubo really does need to, to step it up. And he, he's got the skills, he has the agility, he's got the technique, but uh, uh, he's got to get a lot, score a lot of goals. I'm talking double digits or more uh, if he's going to get back into the national team picture. But as far as uh, him individually, I, I remember you wrote to me a while ago that uh, he went to Switzerland at the age of 19 without an interpreter and then was in Europe for seven years, Switzerland and then uh, Belgium. So he uh, he survived that uh, culturally, which uh, I think is a big statement. Right. And will that uh, is that an example of how it might go for him in MLS where he's he, again now he's in a locker room with mostly English speaking players. I don't know how his English is, but what do you think? I think he should be fine. Uh, I think that once you've been in a, a European locker room, which I mean, European locker rooms are very multicultural these days. Uh, and I, I think he'll do well. It's obviously a different culture uh, in terms of what the fans expect, uh, what the media expects. Uh, for example, you, know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but you, MLS reporters just go into the locker rooms and talk to players. Yeah. Uh, just like in any other, we, we still have, you know, mix zones and, uh, you know, players go up and down the line and right. uh, he'll, but yeah, you know, that, that, that's something you'll have to adjust to. And obviously uh, Cincinnati have a very passionate fan base, uh, a very frustrated fan base after their first season. And uh, he is there, you know, being a DP signing, uh, there will be a lot of expectations on him. And that's on, on it's all up to him. I think that he has to uh, start performing. He, you know, he had a bit of a rough outing against Red Bulls uh, last week. I think he got lit up on their second goal, wasn't it? Uh, I think those, if I'm, I'd have to look at the clip again, but he, he sort of lapsed defensively and, and that, that's something that he'll, he'll need to, to do. And it, it's not going to happen automatically, but it needs to happen quickly. Uh, I, he's got all the tools to get it done. Uh, he just needs to, to focus and, uh, to, to get over sort of whatever culture shock he's had to deal with and uh, focus on, you know, what, everything between the first and the final whistle. We're talking about you, uh, Kubo. Uh, 79 minutes in his MLS debut, uh, had one of their five attempts on frame, suffered a couple of fouls along the way, and uh, is, uh, is growing into his uh, position with FC Cincinnati. Dan Orlowitz, who uh, has uh, covered uh, Japanese football for, uh, well, You've been over there watching it. I know you've been uh, with the Japan Times for a year and a half. And I, I wonder uh, now as we, we turn our thoughts finally, Dan, to uh, the coronavirus 
and its impact, uh, not just in Japan, but global football. But you look at the, in Italy, they're now playing to empty stadiums. Uh, in the U.S., U.S. soccer, the federation uh, uh, recently uh, releasing a statement that they're reviewing and monitoring all international and domestic programming. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's really struck, uh, you know, obviously all aspects of the world in, in every industry, but here in soccer. Tell us what the impact has been uh, in Japan. Uh, the J-League last week was the first uh, major uh, sports competition in Japan to announce that they would postpone fixtures. Uh, we did get round one off. Uh, on the weekend of the uh, the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And uh, you, you saw a lot of, uh, there were a lot of photos that went around of just stands full of fans wearing face masks. And uh, they had uh, disinfectant stations set up with like uh, alcohol sprays for your hands and that sort of thing. And uh, clubs have been canceling uh, fan service events, so you know, closing off pra- practices so the fans can't uh, come to the training ground and watch. Uh, and as of right now, the league is on hold until I believe March 18th, and they're hoping to get things underway on that date, which was a scheduled fixture. And then the the challenge is going to be making up uh, the games that were missing uh, before the Olympics. Uh, which is going to be tough because a lot of uh, venues that are being used for the Olympics, I mean, those are J1 stadiums, those are J1 training grounds. So uh, the, the the league is taking a month-long break for the Olympics. And so it's there's that to handle. There's the Asian Champions League to juggle. There's the cup competitions uh, because we do have a league cup in addition to the Emperor's Cup. And then there's the national team. Uh, we're supposed to play two World Cup qualifiers uh, in Western Japan at the end of this month. And right now, we don't know if those matches are going to happen. Uh, it, it's tough for Japan. It's been very tough for our neighbors in China, where the league is postponed, in Korea, where it's been postponed, in Thailand, where they put it on hold for about a month. Uh, and just something that we have to deal with. Uh, the J League was very um, bold in its decision to to put things on hold. They, they took action before the government even said that we want sport, you know, we want sporting events to sort of take a break for two weeks. Uh, so the, the league drew a lot of praise for that and the fans have been taking it well. I think everyone wants, uh, we, we, everyone wants the fans to be safe and the players to be safe. And we just want, uh, we don't want to play behind closed doors. Uh, J league chairman, Mitsuru Murai, said at his press conference basically that playing behind closed doors is the very last option they want to take. Uh, They're here to put on games for the fans and they want the fans to be in the stands uh, watching the games. What, uh, Dan, in regard to the Olympics, what's the rhetoric there? Um, Certainly that's a ways off. However, uh, not really that far down the road. And so what are the most updated discussions regarding that? Uh, A... The Olympics minister said today that the, the the contract that the organizing committee and the IOC have is such that if if necessary, uh, the games could be postponed until later this year. Uh, that's 
a hypothetical. Uh, it's not something that at the moment I think is going to happen. I think that we'll start um, on July. I think the 24th is the opening ceremony, but uh, baseball and soccer start on around 21st, 22nd. And I think we'll get there. Uh, if things get worse, obviously all bets are off. But uh, Japan has invested way too much into these Olympics for them to not happen. Uh, a lot of political capital has been spent. A lot of financial capital has been spent. Uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe will get this across the finish line if he has to run the torch marathon himself. Well, it's uh, impacted uh, the United States as well. Certainly uh, fewer um Incidents, but six people have perished, including reportedly three in the Seattle area. Over 40,000 at Century Link to watch Seattle open the season with a victory over Chicago on the weekend. So, a lot of decisions to be made uh, about this uh, regarding coronavirus. Well, Dan, it's, uh, it's really been a pleasure to uh, get a thorough outlook of uh, what you do for the Japan Times, the J League, some of the players involved and uh, the players who have made their way to the United States of America. And uh, I wish you all the best, and uh, I look forward to us chatting again. Uh, thank you. No, it was always a, a pleasure to, to preach the gospel, and uh, I know that the J-League isn't uh, currently airing in the U.S. Uh, right now, uh, but uh, the league's uh, international uh, social media ha has uh, restarted the season and they're doing a cool job. So go look them up and uh, do what you can to follow the league because there's a lot of us who are passionate about Japanese soccer. Uh, I think that a lot of MLS fans have should have an affinity for it, could have an affinity for it. Uh, there's a lot of color, a lot of great play uh, a lot of wonderful teams and players who are worth your attention and uh, i'd love nothing more than to you know be able to come on uh, and talk about it more often all right dan well thanks so much great insight from tokyo japan with dan orlowitz new york city fc you know they're bracing for a congested schedule they've got toronto on saturday the first of five matches in a two-week stretch with uh, most players still not at full game fitness. At MLS Media Day last week in New York City, the commissioner, Don Garber, addressed just that, the lengthy offseason and the inability to properly prepare for CONCACAF Champions League matches. These comments coming prior to the second legs of the CCL quarterfinals involving five MLS clubs. The offseason's too long, you know, and there's no doubt about it. We've got to figure out a way to uh, try to manage the fact that we continue to evolve our schedule and and have not really been able to even after all these years settle on something that's perfect most evidenced by the fact that we were in the these champions league games the lafc leon game leon's in four or five games in match shape and our guys haven't played a regular season game we've tracked some of the performance of our clubs in the champions league uh, games we had by the 80th minute, we were dominating, and between 80 and 90, we, we weren't and didn't have the results that we had hoped to have. So part of that is just the schedule continues to be a massive challenge for us. There are no easy answers. Our competition committee met in Mexico a couple weeks ago. We spent a lot of time talking about that. Are there tournaments that we could do in the offseason? Could we change our point of view with what we do with the U.S. Open Cup, maybe with League's Cup? Are there more creative ways that we could ensure that clubs that are not 
continuing through to the MLS Cup or through the playoffs are not sitting around. Frankly, I don't think it's good labor management. They're getting paid. Yeah, it's not, it's not permitted in our CBA agreement. That being said, uh, it's not as if our union is against it. Right, but you can't treat certain players one way and other players another way. There are there are enormous challenges of creating a um, uh, an off-season management and a, um, a a timetable for all players within a union when some players have different games that they need to play. I, I want to reiterate: this is not something that our union has said no to. It's just something that we've got to f- figure out a way to manage uh, if there's going to be changes. Another approach is get CONCACAP to change the schedule. And we've been working hard to get them to do that. That's MLS Commissioner Don Garber, New York City's next CCL match. The second home leg at the home of their rivals, Red Bull Arena. That'll be Wednesday, March the 11th against Tigres. Uh, A more fan-friendly kickoff at 8 p.m. as opposed to the 6 p.m. match against San Carlos. And also the return of the third rail. The flagship supporters group for NYCFC, they've lifted their boycott and they'll be out in full force in Harrison, New Jersey. Well, that'll do it for this episode. MLS expansion side Austin FC, they begin play in 2021, and my conversation with their coach, Josh Wolf next week. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.